Well, have you ever struggled with the apparent lack of injustice in the world? I mean, it's amazing how young children wrestle with this from a very early age, shouting out, that's not fair. But it's not only children that seem to shout out, that's not fair. We may get a little better as we get old. But maybe you've had a job where someone gets promoted over you, right? The rub is, right, they've lied, they've passed blame on projects, they've taken credit for things that were not actually theirs to take credit for. And maybe that caused you to wonder if maintaining your integrity is really all that worthwhile. Or as I can remember really, really clearly at Purdue, you know, I was trying to live for the Lord, I was growing in my relationship with Christ, and so there were certain things in seeking to please Him that I just was not going to engage in. Wasn't going to go to parties that featured drinking or sexual promiscuity and so forth. I was really trying to live soberly for the Lord and in purity. But I can really remember wrestling for a season, really wondering why in the world is life so challenging for me when it seems like the myriads of students who are living obviously immoral lives have it so much easier. Why, if I was seeking to please the Lord, was my life not obviously more blessed than those who weren't living to please the Lord? I mean, there are tons of examples to this kind of question. I know every person probably in this room has wrestled with, and certainly there are people in this room that are really wrestling with a specific scenario right now where that question's coming up. Now, the good news is none of us are the first person to actually raise that kind of a question. In fact, if you know your Bible well, you may be thinking about a very, very famous psalm that addresses this very issue of justice. Psalm 73 begins with the psalmist saying, surely God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. But then he says, but as for me, my feet came close to stumbling and my steps had almost slipped. That's a pretty honest statement. Right? He's not really talking about just a minor fall. Right? He's confessing that he's on the verge of a real crisis. He goes on to explain in the next verse why he's at this crisis point, again, with incredible transparency. He says, I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, it's bad enough to admit in general terms to be envious of the wicked, but he doesn't stop there in the psalm and goes on to give very, very specific reasons why he was envious of the wicked. He says, for there are no pains in their death. Their body is fat, they are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace, the garment of violence covers them, their eye bulges from fatness, the imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression, they speak from on high, they have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth." Right? In, in no uncertain terms, the author Asaph is saying, everything goes well for the wicked. Asaph, you could say it this way, is regretting the teachers that he's followed up to this point in his life. It says in verse 10, Therefore his people return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, How does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease they have increased in wealth. I mean, as we read through those descriptions of how he sees the arrogant and the wicked prospering, I mean, are you getting the sense that Asaph is seeing one or two wicked people prospering? Or that he's looking out at the wider culture saying, I see lots and lots of wicked people prospering. I think it's the latter. 
sees a lot of people that he would throw in the wicked category that are prospering. And it's probably not all that big of a jump to our culture today where many people often look around and go, well, evildoers, liars, cheats, and so forth, they're prospering. They're getting ahead. He goes this far to conclude at this point in the psalm saying, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I've been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. Now, if that's not full-on just spiritual depression, it has to be very, very, very close. And how many of us could relate to that line of thinking at some point wondering, man, have I actually kept my hands clean in vain? Right? But if you know the Lord, as Asaph did, that's not actually where the psalm ends, praise the Lord. He goes on and says, if I had said I will speak thus, Behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Now, in other words, what he's saying here is he's missing something in his calculation, right? And it's causing him real trouble. So he needed to figure out what in the world he was missing in his calculation. And the next verse tells us where he found what was missing and also what he found that was missing. He said, until I came into the sanctuary of God... That's where he found the missing calculation. He then says, then I perceived their end. Now, it's really important to chew on the phrase, then I perceived their end. I mean, the question of who you're going to follow and who you're going to listen to should really include their end. Not just, is it going well for a few days, few weeks, few months, or even just a few years? What is their end? What Asaph is helping us learn through his own story is that we need to learn the discipline and the skill of thinking all the way through to eternity rather than just here and now. So with eternity factored into the equation, Asaph pulls out of his spiritual depression and he says, surely you set them, that being the wicked in slippery places, you cast them down to destruction, how they are destroyed in a moment. They're utterly swept away by sudden terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. So if you think about where the psalm began, where Asaph says he's in a slippery place, now in light of eternity, he sees himself on solid footing, and he is seeing the wicked as being in very, very slippery places. All the arrogant boasts of the wicked have simply confused God's patience with apathy and impotence. Asaph ends this psalm by saying, when my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory. So there's his end. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord my God my refuge, that I may tell of your works. I think the point is pretty clear. When it comes to who we're going to follow, we really better consider their end. Now, you might be thinking, well, that's, that's all well and good. That's a great psalm, but I thought we were studying Second Peter. And that is true, we are in Second Peter, but this psalm is making the same point that we're going to see in our passage this morning. So the passage we're looking at this morning comes in Second Peter chapter 2, so you can make your way there. It's going to make the same point, but in a very, very different way, a very powerful way, but it's going to be very dif- different. 
And so by reading Psalm 73, I'm hoping that will frame what we're saying and help us keep focused on the main point of Second Peter as opposed to getting lost in some of the more challenging details. The annual theme that we've been considering all year is hope for everyday life. And, the, and in this fall, we've been saying through the book of Second Peter in order to help us grow in grace and knowledge. That comes from the last verse in Second Peter where it says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We concluded chapter one a couple of weeks ago, and in many ways, chapter one was very, very positive. Chapter one, Peter talked about the beauty of the gospel and how that can produce delightful fruit in a believer's life. And then he talked about the sufficiency of God's Word. So those are two very, very positive reasons why we can actually have hope to grow in grace and knowledge in this life. But once we reach chapter 2, as we did last week, the book really changes in tone. And when Pastor Byers introduced this book, uh, when we started studying it, he he quoted a commentator that called Jude and 2 Peter the dark corner of the New Testament. Right? So you might have been wondering by the end of chapter 1, well, what's so dark about this? Well, chapter 2 immediately dives into the dark as he begins to talk about false teachers, which is what we said is one of the primary purposes of why he even wrote this book. So last week, we look at 2 Peter 2, 1 to 3, where we are considering about how to discern false teachers, where he says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, that being Jesus, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, because of them the way of truth will be maligned, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Now, Peter, at this point in his life, is near the end of his life, possibly with the severe persecution of the Roman emperor Nero already underway. And so with earnestness, Peter is knowing that he's about to pass from the scene, and he is penning this letter, praying and hoping that believers would not follow false teaching. And the logic of the passage that we're looking at today, it gets to the same point that Psalm 73 does, is that we are to consider the end of the teachers that we choose. So we're thinking this morning about choosing teachers wisely by considering their end. So follow along with me as I read in verse 4 of 2 Peter chapter 2. So this is the word of the Lord that says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. And if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by sensual conduct of unprincipled men, For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Well, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation, that's good news, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority." 
So this morning we're talking about choosing teachers wisely by considering their end. And we're going to look at three responses uh, to our God who will someday execute perfect justice. Now the first response is to be sobered by God's judgment on the unrighteous. Now, to help us be sobered, Peter uses three examples, and these examples are fascinating. He begins with the angels. Now, when you study Scripture, if you really study Scripture, I think many people are surprised to actually find out that demons and angels do not really take up a prime place in the Bible. In fact, most of the things that people claim to know about angels and demons are incorrect and don't come from Scripture. Lots of movies and popular culture has taken a lot of fascination with demons and angels, again, which may be interesting, but doesn't really come from Scripture. I mean, as a child of the 90s, I can remember growing up seeing my fair share of the TV show, Touched by an Angel, right? Well, Peter is not exactly thinking along the lines of Touched by an Angel here. He's not thinking along the lines of cultural uh, ideas of angels, So when he says in verse 4, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, he he has a different idea of angels in mind. A parallel passage in Jude tells us, and angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for judgment uh, of the great day. Now, a really good question that you're probably asking is, well, what angels are these? I'm going to give you one of the best theological answers that I can. I don't know. Okay? Now, in all seriousness, that is a good theological answer because God hasn't told us everything. There's lots of truth that we just don't know. Now, what we do know is that neither Peter nor Jude give much detail. This is all they say. They give the example of the angels with no introduction and no further explanation. Now, with the other two examples that follow, we can be fairly certain of one, whatever he's referring to is historical, like it happened. This is not a hypothetical. And then two, chronologically, whatever angels he's talking about that have sinned, that probably happened before Noah's flood. Okay, now there's... There's a lot, I mean, a lot of debate about who these angels are and what they did. I'm not saying there isn't any place for really digging and going into that and trying to find some conclusion there, but the really, really good news is we don't actually have to know exactly what angels are being referred to here to get the point. The point really is if God would judge angels for their sin and their disobedience, then he'll surely judge false teachers or those who follow false teachers. Now, since this book is on false teaching, a quick note that that maybe is helpful at this point is one of the tactics that many false teachers use uh, to to get people to follow them is they cloud the truth in order to deceive. So Paul warns against this in Titus 3 where he says, avoid foolish controversies. There's a lot of foolish controversies that can come out of a passage like this. And what Paul says is they're unprofitable and worthless. So we really don't want to spend much time in foolish controversies that are unprofitable and worthless. So I just want you to consider this. 
Paul says that these angels are in hell. This is where other angels are. We read about in Revelation 5 where it says, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and honor and glory and blessing." And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things in them, I heard them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. Now, Jude described these angels not keeping their domain and abandoning their proper abode. Revelation just gave us a picture of angels that stayed within their main, that did not domain and didn't abandon their proper abode. And the question that we need to consider as far as, well, what end would you rather be, right? Which angel would you rather be? The one in hell or the one that's rejoicing and praising the lamb in heaven? So whatever situation you may be in right now, where false teaching may be whispering to you, or perhaps false teaching is shouting to you that justice is never done on earth, everyone else is doing it, and so you might as well do it too. Well, I'd stop to consider the angels, right, that God judged and consider their end. Now, the the judgment described on the angels, it's sobering, and we ourselves should be sobered by that very judgment. Now, the second example that Peter gives here is the ancient world. Now, this example is speaking about the judgment that came on the world through the flood back in Genesis. Now, the words used to describe by God himself to describe the world at that time are stunning. And what makes the words even more stunning is considering that they were penned about the world only six chapters into the Bible. So, in Genesis 6, it says, "...then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth." and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on earth. He was grieved in his heart, and the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. God had spoken back in Genesis 2 before sin ever entered the world, These very, very true words where he says, the Lord commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. Now the first false prophet and false teacher and the one that is still very, very active today, Satan, he had this false prophecy where he said, the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. Peter is reminding his readers here in verse 5, God didn't spare the ancient world, right? Like death actually does come. And one of the things that we have to recognize is we are living in a time when it is quite popular to believe that just saved by grace and not of works means that I don't actually have to live a holy life. Right? Jude even says in his letter, certain persons have crept in unnoticed who turn the grace of God into licentiousness or sensuality. And the point is they make the, they make the grace of God a license to live a sinful lifestyle. Well, among that kind of false teaching in today's age, the idea of God's wrath really is not a popular or welcome topic. Right? And prefer to talk about God's grace, His love, His acceptance. 
But if we ignored God's wrath and God's judgment, we'd have to ignore large portions of Scripture. And Peter's whole point in this section is that false teachers and those that follow false teachers go to a terrible, terrible end. And just a quick side note, I really hope that we do believe in an actual flood. I mean, there's lots of people that don't believe in the global flood that's described in Genesis, but Peter told us back in Genesis 1 that we have the inspired scriptures that came from God and that men moved by the Holy Spirit wrote down what God wanted. And I hope you believe in the inspired word of Genesis and the global flood, I mean, if you don't, then Peter's whole point here essentially becomes, metaphorically, God will judge the wicked. And my point is that what we believe about the historicity of the events that Peter is giving and the examples he gives in this chapter are going to have a massive bearing on whether or not you truly trust the Lord to be a just God. Now, the third example he gives is Sodom and Gomorrah. And so in verse 6, he says, he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. This event occurred 450 years after the flood. And the Bible describes Sodom and Gomorrah, geographically speaking, as being a very fertile and beautiful place. It says in Genesis 13.10, Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw the valley of the Jordan. It was well watered everywhere. And it goes on to say, like the garden of the Lord, (laughs) like the land of Egypt as you go to Zor. So what a blessed place to live is the point where people should have been living, thanking the Lord, living under his authority. But instead, this is what the Lord says to Abraham about this place. The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. Now, we don't have time to read the account of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's found in Genesis 19. And when you read it, the sin of that place is shocking. And in my study, I was reading one commentator, I forget who it was, but he said one of the best protections against sin is that we are shocked by it. And I just wonder how shocked we still are by sin, or have we grown so accustomed and gotten used to sin that it doesn't surprise us anymore. I mean, the Lord seemed quite outraged by the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah to the point that he was willing to rain fire down on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. Now, maybe you're not familiar with these passages, or maybe you're new to church and you're thinking, Wow, this is, this is a fire and brimstone kind of church. Perhaps a better way of saying it would be the Bible is a fire and brimstone book at times. I mean, we really believe that there is a real heaven to be gained and there is a real hell to be shunned. And now would be a really good time to just pause and ask all of us, are these examples helping properly sober us by, to the properly sobering us to the judgment of God. I mean, there's lots of positive reasons to have joy in the Lord. I mean, we're going to talk about one of them in the next point, but we would be really, really remiss if we don't actually pause on this point. I think we'd have to be, we'd have to agree that we can be pretty flippant when it comes to the kinds of teachers that we listen to. 
whether it be through music, social media, movies, books, podcasts, and so forth. The flippant way in which we listen to false teachers might reveal that we're not actually properly sobered by the judgment of God, as if a little sin and a little rebellion isn't that big of a deal, right? We may think, well, a little false teaching, like that, that's not going to hurt me. I hope you really consider the end of the angels. I hope you consider the end of the ancient world that was swept away by a flood and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah that God reduced to ashes, right? Consider them and be appropriately sobered to the point of caution and carefulness to who you listen to and who you follow. I mean, when's the last time that you chose not to watch something because it wasn't going to be good for you? Or maybe better yet, you chose to watch something and in the middle of it, you realized that your heart and mind didn't need this and so you shut it off. And parents, adults, I really hope that we don't think children are the only ones that need guarded from false teaching. I I hope that we actually believe that we need to guard ourselves from false teaching. Well, I hope it does properly sober us, but there is also really, really good news in this passage, right? We should be amazed at God's rescue of his people. I mean, at this point in our study, we should be able to clearly see the contrast between the, uh, the, the reliable, truthful prophets that Peter talked about in chapter 1 that are giving us everything that we need for life and godliness And then the false prophets of chapter 2 that secretly are bringing in heresies, maligning the way of truth. I mean, Peter said that their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. But that really still leaves open the question of like, well, what about those that actually follow the truth in verse 19, where it says, we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention, right? Like what's the outcome of those who actually pay attention to the word of God? Well, we could just ask Noah and Lot. So first you have Noah's family where it says, you know, he didn't spare the ancient world, but notice he preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So a good question to ask is, well, what what do we know about Noah from Genesis? It says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Completely different than how the Lord views the false prophets and false teachers that Peter's been warning us about. So the Lord himself comes down and prophesies to Noah, and he says this, Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them from the earth. So make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms. You shall cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top and set the door of the ark in the side of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life. From under heaven, everything that is on earth shall perish, but I will establish my covenant with you. You shall enter the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you, and every living thing of all flesh. You shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. It shall be male and female, of the birds after their kind, the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind. Two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. 
And as for you, take for yourself some food of all which is edible and gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. So what does this righteous man do who pays attention to truthful prophecy? And by the way, the project that God just gave to Noah was a 120-year project to build the ark. It says Noah did it, right? According to all that God commanded him, he did it. Why would he do what God commanded him? Because he was a righteous man. But don't, don't misinterpret the kind of righteous man that Noah was, right? It was the kind of righteousness that Peter actually tells us in verse 1 of this letter, to those who have received, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of God, right? Noah was like Abraham who was not saved by works because nobody saved by works, but rather he was like Abraham who believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, right? The same truth, the same was true of Noah. He believed God and God's righteousness was credited to him, which centuries later through the life of Christ and the death and resurrection of Christ would be secured for him. And because of the favor and righteousness he received from God, he became what James would describe as someone in the New Testament being a doer of the word. But Peter also tells us something else about Noah. He says that he was a preacher of righteousness. You know, well, what, what does that mean? Well, we don't exactly know because Genesis doesn't tell us what that preaching of righteousness looked like. But what is pretty clear is that whatever that preaching of righteousness was, there weren't very many converts, right? It was only eight people that were saved, Noah's family. Now, I don't say that to Noah's shame as if he was a terrible preacher. Peter is pushing us to consider their end, right? Noah and his family were preserved and the rest of the ancient world was swept away. I mean, friends, I think the lesson is very clear that faith in God's word preserves while following false teachers brings on judgment. They mocked Noah about building the ark, right? It had had never rained before. There is all kinds of biblical truth being mocked today, and it might even seem like biblical truth is losing. People may say it's outdated, it's no longer relevant, it's restrictive, it's repressive, I mean, especially things like sexual purity and the notion that sex is only for the confines of marriage between one man and one woman, or even that marriage is a lifelong commitment till death do us part. If it looks like no one is listening, which I hope we look around the room and go, there's more than eight people that seem to be listening, so we have a whole lot more to be thankful for than Noah did. But even if nobody seems to be listening, the point is, consider the end of those who don't pay attention to the Word of God. I'd hope we'd all say, like, I want to be preserved. (laughs) Seems like it's a whole lot better than being swept away, right? And if we really want to be preserved, then I think we need to pay careful attention to the truths of Scripture. Then similarly, we have the example of Lot. Peter tells us, that if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Now, maybe you're scratching your head at the description of Lot being a righteous man. The Genesis account doesn't seem to particularly highlight the righteousness of, sought, of Lot all that much, especially not like Noah, anyways. 
And here's how one commentator helps us understand Lot as righteous. He says, while certainly far from perfect, Lot Lot never lost his basic orientation to the Lord. The word righteous that Peter uses need not mean uh, no more than this. In the New Testament, this word often refers to a person's status before the Lord rather than to one's innate moral virtue. Moreover, it's important to note that Peter does not say that the Lord rescued Lot because he was a righteous man. Similarly, it will not be because of virtue of their inherent goodness that God will deliver Christians in Peter's day or in ours from the judgment that he will bring on the ungodly. Rather, it will be because of their knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord and because they are distressed as Lot was at the rampant sin around them. Now, Lot was the nephew of Abraham, and he lived with Abraham for a good chunk of his life, and so undoubtedly, Lot must have been impacted by Abraham's life and his teaching. So when it came time for Sodom and Gomorrah to be literally destroyed uh, by fire and brimstone, angels came and warned Lot and, and his family to flee. And sadly, I mean, sadly to one degree, but also positively to another degree, we read, but he hesitated. But the men, the angels, they seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him, and they brought him out and put him outside the city. Now, when an angel seizes you and your family and yanks you out of a city that's about to be destroyed by fire, what would you call that? Like, that that seems like a rescue, And I think we can agree that being rescued is a whole lot better than being reduced to ashes. And so again, like what's what's the point of knowing God's judgment and knowing that he's able to preserve and rescue the righteous? Well, it gets to the third point, that we really should be encouraged because God knows how to make things right in the end. 2 Peter 2.9 says, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. Like the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and also to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. I mean, if you believe the three examples that Peter gave, we'd have to powerfully conclude that the Lord knows right? The Lord actually knows. Please consider the situation that really bothers you right now, the situation that you'd be looking at right now where you go, man, injustice is just winning. Perhaps even like Asaph, you, you might feel like you're right on the edge of slipping, right? You might even be thinking along the lines of, it's really in vain that I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, but before you slip any further, I would really consider you, I would ask you to consider their end. Consider the end of the godly, right, where God actually promises to rescue them. Now, here's a few practical takeaways that I would encourage you to really, really think about. The first one is be sure that you've actually received the righteousness of God by faith, right? Like, make sure that you know that you know that you know that you're on your way to heaven, I mean, Noah and Lot were imperfect people, but they were people of faith. They had believed in God, and God had credited to them his righteousness. And if you're you're not sure that you know what it means to to have a relationship with Christ, I would encourage you to reach out to one of your service pastors, like make sure that that is handled. 
Then the second practical takeaway would be this, like rejoice in your Savior who makes righteousness and our eternal destiny with Him possible. We should be extremely, extremely thankful people. Paul said in 2 Timothy 1, for this reason I also suffer these things, but I'm not ashamed. I hope we're not ashamed. And he says this, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. I hope we rejoice in the God that is able to guard us. Three, remember that because the Lord will make all things right in the end, often our role is to simply return good for evil. If God really is going to make things right in the end, then it says, Paul says in Romans 12, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And if we really believe that God is going to make everything right in the end, that frees us up to simply love people and trust the Lord. It's really, really freeing. And then finally, as we've been talking about all, all this morning, choose your teachers wisely. Choose your teachers wisely. Remember their end. We live in a culture that doesn't think very far into the future. We need to be thinking differently. We need to be thinking all the way into eternity. And if we are truly factoring into eternity, that will radically, radically change the way that we choose what to do and who to listen to. So I hope that that's an encouragement to you this morning. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us with that. God, we come before you, and God, we're very thankful that you know or that's really powerful for us to consider. So often I know that I have struggled, and I know many people struggle with, well, does anybody even see? God, you know, you see, and the fact that you see injustice and are patient, Lord, does not mean that you're okay with it, does not mean that you're not doing anything. God, in fact, when we think about the Old Testament, or in just how much sin, Lord, was um, going on for centuries, Lord, what we have to realize is that your plan uh, from the beginning was to bring Jesus Christ. Lord, you were methodically working uh, to bring about, Lord, the end of sin, but also the forgiveness of sin in Jesus Christ. So, God, I do pray that you would help us to be thankful, Lord, that you know that we also would be thankful that you are going to make everything right in the end, and that, Lord, you would not... Um, that you would help us not get to the point where Asaph was, where he was believing in vain he had kept himself clean. God, I pray that you would encourage us with this. God, we rejoice in the fact that you know how to rescue the righteous. Lord, and the rescue of the righteous, as we see in Scripture, even through Noah and through Lot, with angels literally dragging him out of the city, Lord, your rescue oftentimes is surprising. And so, Lord, we just need to trust that you're able to do that. Lord, you help us to be a church um, that is able to engage in the culture in such a way, Lord, that we are not repaying evil for evil, but we're returning good for evil. Lord, help us in that way to follow in your footsteps 
And then in that way, we would be winning, Lord, even as we sang earlier this morning, that we would be winning enemies to be our friends, Lord, because ultimately, Lord, we were your enemies first, but you made us into your friends through, the death on the, through your death on the cross. So I pray that you'd help us with all that, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen.